0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio
2: 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Riddhi Clappy.
3: Does the Naked Scientist look anything like you'd imagined? No. No. Chris, how do you feel about that?
0: Welcome. I I don't know whether to be offended or touched. I don't know. (laughs) And who are they they referring to, me or Ginny or Ben?
3: And uh, welcome, Ginny. Welcome. It's lovely to have you here. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much. And Ben, lovely to see you again. You joined us the last time. I think it was around July, two years
2: ago. Two whole years. Lovely to be back. Thank you ever so much.
3: Thank you so much. So, Chris, tell us what you'll be doing. Tell us about your experiments today. We'll start with you.
0: Okay, so what we've got for you, everybody, is uh, a mixture of some Q&A. So this is obviously a live show, and it's going to be a pretty boring show if you don't ask us anything. So we need lots of good questions and comments from you, lots of cheers and noise. We've also got some experiments for you. So Ben is going to demonstrate a vacuum bazooka in a second, so he can tell you about that. Ginny has got a thought experiment for you. Because all the best experiments are thought experiments. Einstein uh, did some of his best work as thought experiments. And uh, I've got a little experiment involving some balloons. So some of you should have some balloons on your seats. So th- who's got a balloon? Give us a wave. Okay, and you can try this at home as well. If you go and grab a balloon and a nut, as in something you would put onto a bolt. I
3: thought you were talking about
0: Aki. No, no, no. Not, 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 uh, not Aki. He wouldn't fit in a balloon. He's a little bit big for that. And, uh, and we'll tell you what to do with that shortly. Actually, Ibrahim, who got us the balloons, and I have to say thank you very much, uh, and the nuts, I said to him when we tried the experiment this morning, uh, EB, your nuts work really well. <laughs> and I never <don't> realized what <laughs> I said.
3: So
2: Ben, are you ready for us? Yep. Yes, of course. So you are all quite used to hearing Chris on the radio answering your questions, talking about science news. But there's something else that we do at The Naked Scientist, which is trying to find ways that you can use stuff you've got lying around at home to demonstrate interesting scientific principles. And the first one that we're going to show you today is actually all about something that's in the air all around us all the time, and that is the air itself. And the thing is that all the time at sea level, there is a weight of air pressing down. On every square metre, there is at least the weight of me, a full-grown man, pressing down just of air. And we thought, well, there must be something we can do with that, make it do something quite cool. So we're going to make that air pressure fire a projectile across the room. In fact, we're making a vacuum-powered bazooka. And in order to do that, we need this, a vacuum cleaner... And we need some bits that we found lying around in the Prime Media toilets. So we've got (laughs) these bits of of piping. And if we connect all of these together, so what we are going to end up with is a very long bit of plumbing plastic pipe. And then at this end, we have a T-junction. And that's very important because that's where it then connects in to our vacuum cleaner. So, of course, when I turn the vacuum cleaner on, what will happen is that will pump air out. And that will lower the air pressure inside this tube what will then happen is that, that all that weight of air pressing down is going to rush in at this end of the tube and at this end. So what we need to do is find a way to block it at one end. So we'll do that. So now all of that weight, all of that weight of a big man like me, is going to push in on this end. And if we put something in the way, what we have is these very soft, very sensible bits of projectile, although in the past we have found that it works just as well with sausages. Um, <laughs> so there'll be all of that weight pressing behind, and what will happen is the air will push the projectile along this plastic tube, it'll gain speed as it goes, and when it reaches this T-junction hopefully it will be going quickly enough to not turn around and go into the vacuum cleaner, but actually to keep moving and shoot right past. Now Chris, would you mind just standing over there somewhere so you can collect these afterwards? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I'm going to need a a volunteer, preferably a reasonably small volunteer. You had your arm up first. Come on up. Can I grab the microphone? Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much for volunteering. What's your name? Tiago. Tiago, thank you for joining us. How
3: old is Tiago? Nine. Nine,
2: Nine. okay. Thank you, Tiago. Now, what we're going to need you to do is to aim the vacuum bazooka, okay? So, if you stand at the front of the stage. At what? Exactly. You'll find out. Now, we're going to put this over your shoulder like a proper bazooka. So if you can face that wall, and we'll pop it over your shoulder, and you hold on to that end, it's going to be your job to
0: aim it so you'll see where everything goes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand in front of Thomas. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> so after each time it fires, I need you to take this bit of card and just put it on the front for me. Is that okay? Yeah. Excellent. So take in your hand. Now, of course, it's about to get a bit noisy as I turn the vacuum cleaner on, but hopefully, we understand the physics. And if the physics is right, then it's all a case of engineering and this should fire. So, I'm going to turn oh, this vacuum cleaner that, on now. So,
0: when
2: so it fires, I have put this in front? Yes, yep. Okay. So, I'm going to turn it on first. It's getting very noisy now, so we'll put the card on. There we go. And now you can let, let, let the card go. The card. Let the card go. Let go. Let go of the card. Okay. There we go. Okay. So I'm going to put my projectile in now. We can hear the vacuum cleaners training. And uh, aim it wherever you want to aim it. I'm going to let go in three, two, one. <laughs> Well done, well done. done. I think my bum survived another day. (laughs) (laughs) But all that is is the weight of the air around us, pushing on that projectile, using stuff you've got at home, you can demonstrate the power of air pressure.
3: Are you all right,
0: Chris? Yeah, I missed my bum. I was all
3: right. You offered your bum. What are yeah, you talking just, about? Shh, careful.
0: <laughs> what will people think thinking of me?
3: Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. All right. Our lines are open for you still. The usual show, 21 446 We're taking your SMSs as well. On three one seven zero two and three one five six seven. Anything that you want to ask the naked scientists, there are three of them: Ben Fesler and Ginny Smith, as well as uh, Chris Smith. O two one four four six zero five six seven. O double one double eight three zero seven zero two. Chris, I have an SMS from last week. Somebody wants to know: Is it true that if one receives a Bone marrow donation, one's blood takes on the DNA of the donor and the rest of one's DNA, example from saliva, remains the same. This is an SMS from Leanne.
0: Hello, Leanne. That's absolutely true. So when we do a bone marrow transplant on people, what we're doing is you are taking away the stem cells which live inside your bone marrow. Those stem cells make red blood cells and white blood cells you are replacing those stem cells with, if you're having what's called an allogeneic stem cell transplant, you're taking bone marrow from another person who's a close genetic match from you, putting it into your body. Normally you just inject the bone marrow into a vein and the cells go around the bloodstream and when they find their way back to the bone marrow, they take up residence there and they start to grow. And the stem cells then start producing new blood cells and they have the DNA of the donor in them and therefore, the blood group that you have will be the, the donor blood group. And the rest of your body obviously remains your own. So you therefore become what's called a chimera. You're a mixture of two genetic people.
3: All right. I'm walking around the room. Anybody who's got a question for the naked scientist, raise your hand so that I can see you. We'll start with this gentleman here. What's your name, sir? My name is Guanele. Guanele. Welcome to the show. What's your question for Chris? Uh, Chris, I would like to know, why is it that uh, infants or kids are able to crawl without damaging their knees,
0: but adults, even if you fall on the grass, your knee will be damaged? You get carpet burns, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, can happen during other activities too. Um, (laughs) Are you speaking from experience? I don't know. Um, (laughs) He's nodding. Um, well, I think the reason is that the skin is an amazing organ. And if you look at different parts of the body, uh, the parts of the body that get the most wear and tear have the thickest skin. And the skin's reactive to wear and tear. So the bits you walk on are thicker than the bits you don't walk on. And the more you walk on those bits, the thicker they become to protect you. And because babies do a lot of, a lot of crawling around, they will have thicker skin on the abraded surfaces for a start. But also, babies don't weigh so much, and they're not actually rubbing themselves in the same way that an adult would, if you, the amount of body mass you'd be putting on your knees is quite high. So I think that's probably the reason that babies build up a bit more skin on the surfaces that wear down, and also they're not actually that heavy, so the amount of friction that she generates is probably quite low because they tend to just sort of slide rather than move along terribly efficiently. Would you agree, Ben or Ginny, do you think that's a-
2: that sounds about right to me. Of course, children are growing as well, so there's a very high turnover of cells, so they're going to re- replace that skin very quickly as they grow. So that's got to be one fact. But I, the question would be then, I, as an adult, if you crawl around a lot, would you develop calluses on your knees? And yes. I think you probably would. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Babies often have quite sort of chubby legs as well, so there might
3: be some, some protection there.
1: So the They're not lower. so bony.
3: Ginny, what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's come to you here. What's your name, darling? Amy. Amy, ask your question. Ask
2: your question. Why and how do planets spin? Why? And how do planets spin? Why and how do planets spin? Spin.
3: spin? Spin.
2: Okay. Chris. Ben, do you get that? I think
3: that's your question. Yeah, I might take this one.
2: So I make a lot of the astronomy programs. Thank you, Amy. It's a wonderful question, a really, really good one. And the reason why planets spin is because of leftover momentum. So planets form from a massive disk of dust and bits of rock and gas. And over time, those what it's a process we call accretion. So what happens is that the rocks attract other rocks by gravity, and over many, many thousands, millions of years, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. But because the disk that they originally came from was already spinning, then what happens is they maintain that momentum. And actually, when you go from a very big disc that's spinning slowly to something very small, then we have a physics situation called the conservation of angular momentum. Have you ever watched ice skating or ballerinas when they do a pirouette? And you know that they'll stick out their arms and their legs and spin. And then when they pull their arms and legs in, they go really, really fast. Well, that's because the conservation of angular momentum, a slow spin a long way from the body, then gets turned into a very I, quick I spin. Very this, I, think I, I, I think you
0: should demonstrate this, spin. I think you
2: should do this. i give it see a go. So, <laughs> so you start spinning, let's say, with a leg stuck out. So you start like that. And then and that's the momentum. And, the and then you pull it in and you go really quickly. <laughs> Without breaking the microphone. And, so, and that's why when you have this disk of dust, when that accretes into a planet, you get the same spin left over, but it's like it's pulled its legs in, spins really quickly, and that's why all of the planets, and usually in the solar system, all of the planets will spin in the same direction, because they came from the same disk of dust.
3: Alright, Ben, I think you must stay away from the <laughs> ballet. <laughs> no ballet or gymnastics for you. <laughs> I'm walking around the room who else has a question for the Naked Scientists? There's three of them, so you can ask your question to whoever you wish. Tala, my name is Tala, And I just want to ask, how is it when you take medicine, your brain knows that you're taking medicine and which part of your body to target?
0: Yeah, very the... good question. So how does effectively the, the pill know which bit of the body is hurting when, you, when you've got, say, a sore knee and you pop a pill? How does it know which bit of the body to go to? The answer is it doesn't. And when you take some, say, paracetamol, acetaminophen, it goes to every part of the body and it inhibits a process of inflammation. So the reason something begins to hurt is that when you injure a part of the body, it triggers a process of inflammation. And this is a chemical process where you make things wherever the body is injured, and those things you make make nerve cells detect pain. So if you inhibit the process of making those chemicals that make you feel pain, you don't feel the pain wherever it's happened. But because the pill has gone to every part of the body, Any part of the body that then starts to hurt will hurt less because it's got painkiller molecules there, but it's only actually doing anything in the part of the body that's injured because that's where you've got those inflammatory chemicals being made. And there are
2: other types of drugs that work in a slightly different way. Things like morphine actually work by blocking the signals of pain that get to your brain. So morphine essentially works everywhere because it's not acting on these chemicals that are created locally. It's acted on essentially the, the motorway that sends those signals from, let's say, your hurt ankle through to your brain. It will block it, usually somewhere around the base of the skull. And so you just don't feel anything.
1: But there's another really interesting phenomenon, which is known as the placebo effect. Which means that if you take a pill, even if it's not active, if it's just a sugar pill, it's basically a sweet, it can make you feel better. And that's something going on in the brain, that you've learned that normally when you take a pill, because you've got a headache, your headache goes away. And your brain gets used to this, so then just the act of taking the pill can actually make you feel better. And amazingly, this can even work if you know that the pill isn't active, just the sort of the ritual of going through the, going to the cupboard, getting the pill out, taking it. Your brain, your body, your brain kind of remembers that that usually makes you feel better and it can actually help.
0: Doesn't work with decaf though, does it, does it? <laughs> <laughs> <That's> true.
3: <laughs> Ginny, I have a story about that. I have a cousin of mine who, I hope my grandmother is not listening, who started taking contraceptives. Uh, she was in her late teens, so my granny would say, what are those pills? Is says, no, they're for headaches. What are those pills for? They're the, the painkillers. And then the one time my grandmother said, can you give me those pills that you take? I'm feeling so bad. And she shared the, uh, the painkillers ki- pain with the, my grandmother who claimed that she was feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely example. All right, any more questions? Yes, sir. Your name first.
0: Hi, AJ. AJ. AJ, do it, yeah. Uh, Chris, there's a question on carbon dating. Uh, that's normally taken from fossils that they try and determine the, the age of those fossils. But the earth itself is, is, uh, is affected by temperature, humidity, and pressures at those levels. How can carbon dating then be that accurate? Okay, so how does carbon dating work? This was actually discovered by a guy called Willard Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. And what happens with carbon dating is that high up in the atmosphere you have particles of nitrogen which are being hit by solar radiation. And it converts nitrogen-14 into something called carbon-14. So, in other words, a radioactive form of carbon. And this gets taken up by plants because it's in the form of CO2. And because it's being made at the same rate, because radiation's coming in from the sky at almost continuous rates, the amount of this radioactive carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is nearly constant. So plants which are photosynthesizing, they're picking up CO2 from the atmosphere and turning it into wood in the plant, they're fixing a certain amount of that radioactive carbon dioxide into themselves continuously. So as soon as the plant dies, it stops taking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and therefore it stops taking up radioactive 14 carbon from the atmosphere. So therefore, the amount of radioactivity in that material begins to fall the minute the plant stops photosynthesizing. And therefore, if you bury that plant matter or you eat that plant matter, from that point onwards, the radioactivity starts to go away. And the, the half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,000 years. So in other words, after every 5,000 years, the amount of radioactivity has fallen by half, then half again, then half again. So if you measure how much carbon-14 is in something and you know how much carbon is there in total, you can work out, therefore, how much it has decayed how many half-lives have gone past, and you can therefore work out how old it must be. And the detail, you can go back to about 50,000 years with any accuracy. Beyond that, it's not terribly good. So it's really good for fairly recent things. Say, the time that we've been studying human migrations and that kind of thing, we can use carbon dating. But for older things, you have to use other methods.
3: All right, we're gearing up for our next experiment the second experiment and it's going to involve I understand you shouting back the answer Ginny she'll tell you all about it. Right now it's 24 minutes to 10 o'clock, our audience at home, you may be in your car, in your office and you've got a question for the Naked Scientists, Ben Felsler and Ginny Smith as well as our very own Chris Smith. They're here in front of a live studio audience and we've had some great questions in case you've just tuned in uh, you've really missed out. But right now let's go straight to the lines. I think it is Barris. Barris, you are calling us from Bloberg Strand. Good morning to you, Barris, and welcome. If I can only click to that. Thomas, help me. There we go. Barris, hi. Morning, morning. Uh, just a question. you often see in movies where a person will get knocked over their head and become unconscious. There are two questions. Actually, what, is it that easy? And secondly, what actually happens to the brain that you become unconscious? All right. Thank you, Barris.
0: Hi, Barris. Very good question. Good morning to you. Um, when you have a head injury what's probably happening is that inside your head your brain is suspended in fluid called cerebrospinal fluid and the brain has a very soft blancmange-like consistency and the reason it's bobbing around in this fluid is to suspend it and support it now if you suddenly stop moving having been moving or you move the head very suddenly then the brain gets left behind a little bit or carries on moving for a little bit after your head starts or stops moving and this causes the brain to cannon into the inside of your skull and in the same way that if you bash into something with your hand you get a bruise on your hand you can bruise the surface of the brain and when you deform or bruise the surface of the brain like this it actually triggers nerve cells to start firing off abnormal electrical activity and this can cause the brain to go into a A sort of firing pattern which makes you go unconscious you become unaware of what's going on temporarily and this is called concussion and so people who do get a bad head injury can temporarily feel disconnected from reality they can go completely unconscious for a little while or they can fit sometimes it can trigger seizures to happen and then the brain sort of electrically resets itself it's like hitting the reboot button and then the activity restores itself to normal and you feel normal again so Hollywood probably takes it to extremes. It's probably easier to knock out people in Hollywood than it is in reality. (laughs) Um, But that's basically what's going on. You bash someone over the head, the brain cannons into the inside of the skull and it triggers off patterns of abnormal electrical activity that temporarily disable normal thought processes and they disconnect the different parts of the brain making you go unconscious. 22
3: minutes to 10 o'clock. Ginny. Okay, right, so
1: this one I want, we're going to turn the tables, and rather than you asking us questions, I'm going to ask you guys a question. And everyone can join in with this at home. So I'm going to ask you a really simple maths question, and I want you to shout out the answer as soon as you know it. And as an added incentive, we actually have a free ticket for our RAND show um, that we can give out to the first person who shouts out the right answer. Okay, so are you ready? Yes! Okay, so the question is, you go into a shop to buy a bat and a ball, and it costs 110 rand. Now, you know that the bat costs 100 rand more than the ball costs. How much does the ball cost? 10 rand. So, who thinks 10 rand? I said 10.
3: <laughs> and I'm not good at math, so be careful.
1: OK, who thinks it's something different? OK, what do you guys think it is? Five rand. Now, can those of you who thought it was 10 rand do the maths in your head quickly? (laughs) So if the ball was 10 rand, how much would the bat be? 100. So how much would... It's 100 rand more than the ball, so it would be 110. So if you bought them together, that would be 120. So it's actually 5 rand, but most of you thought 10 rand. Now, I tricked you a little bit. It's not really a maths question. It's a psychology question. (laughs) So the reason that most people get this wrong is because of the way our brains work. Basically, our brains are a little bit lazy. If you think about how much they have to do all the time, just just to get you here, just to walk down the street, they have to make sure you don't fall over. They have to make sure that you're looking where you're going, that you recognise your friends when you arrive here. They've got so much to do that when they can, they take a shortcut. And that's what they did with this maths problem. Most of the time, when someone gives you a maths problem, an easy maths problem, the obvious answer is the right answer. So you don't bother to check it. (laughs) It seemed like a really obvious answer, didn't it? 100 rand, 110 rand, must be 10 rand. And because of that, your brain just didn't bother to work it out slowly from, from first principles because that takes up too much energy. And your brain is doing more important things for your survival working that out from first principles.
2: Wow.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely example of some of the tricks your brain can play on you. And there are loads of others, particularly um, in the visual system. Your vision uses a lot of shortcuts and things. So if you've ever looked at the clouds and seen faces, that's because our brain is so used to seeing faces that anything that's sort of roughly face-shaped, your brain goes, it's probably a face. I'll just assume it's a face. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's loads of these sort of things and, and they're a great way of understanding how our
3: brain works a bit more carefully Thank you so much, Ginny Now, so many years after I dropped maths in matric You tell me what I should have done to stay the course I chose home economics instead, so there we go Alright, our lines continue to be open for you We are going to take one call from Bruce in Kempton Park Bruce, good morning Good morning. I would like to know, if you heat something up, the molecules expand. When you cool something down, the molecules contract. But how
2: come in the case of water, if you freeze it, it expands into ice and you overflow. It expands to the extent of
3: breaking a bottle. I'll listen on the radio. Thanks. Bye.
2: All right. Thank you, Bruce. So this is it's actually quite a, a basic physics thing, and it's very easy to think that when you heat something up, the molecules expand. But actually what happens, and again I'm going to have to do a bit of ridiculous theatre at the front here, what, what happens is that the molecule itself doesn't get any bigger. It just gets more energy. So usually when something's quite cold, it just vibrates gently. And so it looks like it takes up just a small amount of space. But then when it's hotter... It vibrates really fast and really hard, and so it looks like it takes up a lot more space. The molecule itself is still exactly the same size. And that's why when you heat things up, they get a lot bigger. And water is a fantastic example because water actually forms a specialized structure when it freezes. So water consists of an oxygen and two hydrogens, and they're sort of in this, roughly this shape. And when when it's cold, it sort of wobbles quite gently. And what happens is because the hydrogen is quite positive, that has a positive charge, and the oxygen is quite negative, what you can end up with is the hydrogen of one water molecule being attracted to the oxygen of another one. And so they line up very neatly in a row, attractive, here we go, so my hand is attracted to Jimmy's head, and, and this means that they form a structure that actually takes up more space than they would do Jimmy, if you could stand up again, yep. if they were warmer and wiggling more then they end up closer together <laughs> <laughs> so water takes up more space because it forms that sort of crystalline structure, and there's actually more space between the atoms, even though the, uh, the molecules themselves are actually moving slower
3: 13 minutes to 10 o'clock and we continue with our questions ma'am, your name My name's Danielle. Hello, fellow Brits.
1: Hello, Danielle. Um, Hi.
3: (laughs) I'd like to know
1: um, if it's possible to stop hair growth or if it's possible to actually increase
3: hair growth.
0: I'm interested in that answer. Uh, Anywhere in particular you'd like this to happen, Danielle? (laughs) Johannesburg, presumably. In Johannesburg. (laughs) Uh, Well, first of all, let's dispel one myth, which is does actually shaving make hair grow more because i know my wife says oh you know don't don't use your razor on my face or whatever because we say sometimes sort of teaser uh, because it'll make it'll make my facial hair grow more it, that, that's not true that's a myth it's absolutely not true that chopping hair makes it grow more or less you can take drugs to make hair grow more there are some gr- there are some drugs that actually have been discovered which make eyelashes grow much longer there's one called lumigan Um, which actually was, it was a treatment for glaucoma but which also has the side effect of making luscious long eyelashes Is
1: that on sale?
0: Um, I I think they are looking to try to produce an eye drop formulation or a paint on formulation that will give people long lashes Um, I'm not sure what the side effects might be though (laughs) It might not be very good for people with asthma because um, the, the way it works for glaucoma is the opposite to the way that uh, anti-asthmatic medication works. So it can make people who have reactive airways get a bit asthmatic. Uh, there are also drugs that can stop hair loss. So one of the reasons that blokes go bald is because of testosterone. And it gets converted to an active form in the scalp in certain parts of the scalp. And this has a toxic effect on hair follicles and makes them stop working. And there are certain drugs that can stop the conversion of the testosterone into the toxic form. One of them is called finasteride. And this is also used for prostate treatment. And so people find as a side effect of their prostate treatment, actually their hair... Uh, doesn't, doesn't fall out anymore the other alternative is castration which um, uh, is a slightly radical way to stop your hair <laughs> falling out but it can stop hair falling out in terms of making hair grow that there are some other slight side effects of drugs there's one called denepazil I think which also was marketed being tested for something else but which when rubbed into the scalp does make new hair grow um, but not very much so you get sort of bum fluff um, but not, not terribly good hair transplant the Wayne Rooney approach that's the alternative though okay
3: yes my darling what's your name? My name's Ray Dean. Um Was the Big Bang loud?
2: Oh. <laughs> what, what was the question? Well, the was
3: the Big Bang, bang, bang loud? Word. Ben, I think you'd like this oh, yeah, one. I'll
2: take that one. The Big Bang is a bit of a misnomer, actually. There wasn't an explosion because there was nothing to explode into. And when we're talking about sound, sound is a wave of pressure in air molecules. So what happens is something like a, a vibration in your throat pushes the air together a bit, and then that wave of slightly denser air travels out. So there wasn't any air for the sound to actually happen into. And actually, to be honest, scientists still don't really understand what happened in the Big Bang. We don't know why it happened. We are getting better and better with things like the Large Hadron Collider at understanding the conditions sort of within, within millions, of a second afterwards but we still can't get that little bit further and work out what actually happened. There's lots of interesting theories. Some people suggest it might be two separate universes which are made of two or three dimensions that actually collided together and the overlap of the result is a multi-dimensional universe like ours and we think our universe might have up to 12 dimensions coiled up. Very very difficult to grasp but the maths is incredibly complicated but that is the only way we can understand it. So, The Big Bang wouldn't have been loud because there was no air in which to actually travel that sound. And it probably didn't actually go bang
0: at all. It probably just
2: appeared.
0: (laughs) It's like the motto for for Alien when it was, um, in space no one can hear you scream. And it's true because a group of students have recently been testing this because there are these CubeSats. They put these little satellites up into space. Uh, They're literally a cube. And uh, a group at Cambridge University have uh, used a smartphone and what they're doing is playing a sound out of the speaker on the, smart, on the smartphone and recording from the microphone on the smartphone. And they're obviously separated by a bit of space. And they're able to demonstrate that there's no sound. The speaker is playing the sound out and there's no sound being picked up by the microphone because there's no air molecules to convey the sound waves from one to the other.
2: It's worth noting though, that there was a massive burst of radiation. So not sound waves, but electromagnetic radiation. And we actually still see the echo of that. We call it the cosmic microwave background radiation. And that we can still see. And in fact, very recently, there have been some results from a mission called the Planck Telescope. And that's looking at this microwave background radiation, the afterglow of the Big Bang. So
0: no sound, but lots and lots of radiation.
3: Chris, I think we're ready for your experiment.
0: Righty-ho. Okay. So some of you have got balloons. So Ben, you have to help me because you have of to course. tell me what's in these balloons. So hands up if you've got a balloon. Okay, what we need you to do is you should have a nut on the chair. Now, this is a metal nut, not something you can eat, so please don't eat it. (laughs) Okay, what we need you to do is put the nut in the balloon. So, uh, here's my nut, and I'm going to put it in the balloon. So, thread it into the neck of the balloon. It will go in. You need to get it into the very bottom of the balloon. Takes a little bit of encouragement. Okay, and when you've done that, blow up the balloon, but don't tie it off. Just blow up the balloon. Some of
2: them might go back.
0: Mm-hmm. Depends if... Mm-hmm. Is and everyone blown up balloon positive, yeah? <laughs> okay, so what you've got to do, if you just... You can tie it up if you want, but it's, sometimes you get, it's easier to just wrap the neck of it around your finger so it doesn't go down. What we need you to do is to spin the balloon. And you'll know when it's working because you'll get a really funny effect. So spin it like a fine white.
3: So
0: noisy! balloon casualty already
2: can you hear that are you getting that sound
0: it's like an engine turning over now we haven't got a horde of angry hornets or wasps in here or bees or something this is nuts going around in balloons what's actually happening if you look at the side of your balloon you'll see the nut is actually rolling around on its side around the middle of the balloon can everyone see that So when you spin the balloon, you're giving some angular momentum to the nut and it climbs up the side of the balloon until the point where it's actually going the slowest it possibly can. If it goes towards the bottom or the top, it's going to have to speed up, so it goes around the middle and it's going around on its edge. And Because it's got a series of flat faces with a point between each flat face, what's happening is that every time the point hits the side of the balloon, which is why some go bang like that, it pushes the side of the balloon out a little bit and then when it rolls onto the flat face the side of the balloon moves in again a little bit and that progressive in out in out movement on the side of the balloon creates a vibration now because the balloon is a very big surface area even though it's a very tiny movement in and out it's moving a very large amount of air and that means you hear that vibration very loudly it has an amplifying effect now can anyone think where you might see the same sort of science at work in the everyday world? Any musicians in? Anyone play a musical instrument? Anyone try and play a musical instrument? What do you play? Plays the drums. Not quite what I'm thinking, but uh, what about violins or cellos? What do you notice if you have a violin or a cello or a guitar, classical guitar, not electric? They've all got a hollow box to them, haven't they? They're a hollow wooden space. And effectively, the string is transmitting vibrations into that hollow box in exactly the same way that this nut is making the side of the balloon vibrate, and it has an amplifying effect. And that's why if you just pluck the string on an electric guitar, you just hear the string vibrating, and it's not until you connect or couple that string mechanically to that big empty box that you get the amplification effect of exactly the same vibration and it becomes much louder and you can hear it. So basically you've demonstrated how a cello or a violin amplifies sound using a balloon and a nut.
2: And you may also notice that the quicker you go, the higher that sound becomes. And that's because of the frequency. So when you shorten a guitar string, it vibrates quicker and the sound is higher. It's the same thing with this. When you do it quicker, it hits the side more often per second, a higher frequency, a higher pitch. And the
3: chances of the balloon bursting, are they
2: higher with the faster rotation, Ben? The chances of the balloon bursting are higher when you're using a slightly rougher nut. And we have noticed, actually, if you get it spinning quite well and then you put it down, that's... We were lucky with that one, but that seems to be your worst chance. You don't have to use nuts. You can try it with different coins as well. And because of the different shapes and sizes and the roughness of the edges of coins, then you'll get different sounds. And a very smooth coin will be... This is a
1: coin. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear that? Just about.
2: The coins are really quiet. because There's so few edges, such a quiet whisper on the inside. But try it with different coins, and you'll find that they make different sounds based on what shape they are. Shaking things
3: up. (laughs) So, if you want to see more of this, please go to the Rand Easter Show. The Naked Scientists will be there until the 1st of April. You've got until Monday to go and see them live at the Rand Easter Show. And we say we're going to give out, uh, give away a ticket to somebody who got that Jimmy's uh, question right. I can't remember who got it right. I know it no, wasn't it was me. Someone over it was someone there, over I there. Think. There you are. Okay, so we'll give <laughs> you your tickets. We'll honour our words. Can you believe it? We've come to the end of the show. Was it fun? Yeah. Big thank you to the Naked Scientists for giving us so much of their time. It's been absolutely delightful. You can download the podcast and then listen to it to it at your leisure.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in R&D over the next 2 years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities.